You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. In this episode, we're looking in-depth at how to design digital health experiences and various examples of the apps and services already out there in the market. And the Mex team gets together to share some user stories after a meeting in London. This episode was first broadcast on Monday, 31st May, 2016. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. And I'm Alex Guest, the co-host of Mex Design Talk. So Alex, I think last time you and I sat down in front of the microphone together, you were off on your way to a children's birthday party. Did you survive this occasion? I survived intact, and I believe the children did too. <laughs> Glad to hear it. So um, let's try and uh, define a little bit about what we're planning to talk about in this episode. We've got a pretty expansive topic, or potentially expansive topic, which I think it might make sense to put a bit of definition and, and limits around so that it becomes meaningful and, and we stay within the scope of, of experience design. Uh, what we're broadly looking at is the idea of consumer-facing digital health experiences. Uh, now, perhaps you could explain a bit, Alex, as to how we're sort of limiting that and the things that we're going to put off limits to keep the discussion on track. Well, there's been a f- phenomenal amount of um, innovation in in the health and medical uh, industries, and and I think what we'd like to do is avoid getting too bogged down in in the sort of the the heavy medical uh, devices side of things, and really look at as you say consumer facing, digitally delivered uh, solutions. Um, so, so the things that that as a consumer, as a patient, you would you would see, rather than the things that go on uh, behind the scenes, you know, whether you're under anaesthetic or or, or, or the sorts of things that might uh, allow doctors uh, and other medical practitioners to to communicate more effectively between themselves. Now we know that this is an area of great interest at the moment. We've already touched on it uh, at several previous MEX events. We've held creative sessions and workshops around this as well. Where we've tried to uncover some of the principles which experienced designers might need to be bearing in mind when they're developing these these kind of uh, platforms and experiences. Um, but I think you went off and did a bit of research about just how significant. A market this is, and perhaps that might give people a sense of, you know, why this is such an opportunity, and why this is an area which people who are working in the field of experience design really do need to start equipping themselves with knowledge about. Yeah, well, let, let's let's look at the, the 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 size of the healthcare industry to start with in the UK. I mean, we're looking there at 158 billion pounds spend by 2020, um, and. Uh, that that's a well published figure because that's that's been put out by by NHS England, um, and on top of that, we're looking at uh, a further spend of something like twenty two billion pounds on, on things like wellness, which which effectively incorporates uh, fitness and and those sorts of things. Um, another and presumably figure- this is specific to the UK market. If we multiply those figures out across the world, we're talking about you know, orders of magnitude higher. That is that is just in the UK. Um, and, and of course, if you look at things like the, the US industry, I mean, that is vastly, vastly bigger. 
So obviously, uh, you know, a market of some size and scope, and you know, no wonder that it's becoming an area of such interest for people who are working uh, in digital. But why don't we start with talking a little bit about where we are personally with this? Because as I say, I think there's probably potential here to go very broad, perhaps too broad with it. But let's ground it in some of the things that we've experienced, you and I personally, with these kind of products and some of the things which are emerging in the digital landscape around health and wellness. Uh, Is there anything in particular for you, a, a memorable app or service which you've tried in this area? Yes, absolutely. And, and Marek, as you know, I've, I've got a particular interest in uh, digital healthcare. So I've spent a lot of time looking at a lot of different apps. Um, there's one app in particular that I continue to use for, 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 for my own personal um, benefit, and that's Headspace. Um, I first came across Headspace, I think, around two years ago um, when it was just getting going. And um, at the time, I, I actually found that Headspace kind of did the opposite of what it was intended to do. Uh, but I've, I've started using it again more recently. And essentially what Headspace is about is um, helping you to, to uh, find some moments of mindfulness uh, within the day. And it guides you through moments of meditation, just 10 minutes a day, um, that, um, that, that help you... Uh, really think about, well, to, to, to observe your thoughts and feelings without putting any sort of judgment about them and without chasing them uh, around, uh, knowing that whether they are positive or negative thoughts and feelings, um, they, they just are more than anything else and, and that, you can, that, you, that you live separate from them as well. Um, and, and Headspace has done a very, very nice job now of, of guiding you through uh, particularly when you start off, the user experience is wonderful. The 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 user interface is is is, is quite beautifully designed, um, but the, the the process of of bringing you into this um, into this mindfulness uh, world of meditation um, s- starts with with a series of of ten meditations, one a day. Uh, which are guided with some some uh, verbal coaching, and and that verbal coaching is uh, every couple of days or every three days, reinforced with some very nice animations, video animations that allow you to to understand metaphorically what it is that it's trying to to explain around mindfulness. Now that, that's interesting. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, to it so that others can go and check it out for themselves. But for you. Uh, what was it that they improved, which changed it from being something which in those initial stages you said you weren't particularly keen on or it wasn't working for you to now two years on where it is obviously something that you're finding useful? Were there particular things that they changed about the user experience which made it more suitable for, for that kind of purpose? Do you know, I can't remember exactly what it was like initially, but um, one of the things that that struck me is it it seemed to interrupt my flow during the course of the day. So rather than being able to, you know, I, w- I would receive notifications when I wasn't expecting them. Um, and that's possibly to do with how I'd set up the notifications. But probably it's a combination of what I'd set up and how easy it was to set them up. Um, and, and so that now, I guess, is, is much smoother. Um, and, and, you know, you can, you can either switch them off, of course, but you can also decide what time of day to have a notification to, just to give you a, a gentle cue that now is a good time 
um, in the day to to spend 10 minutes quietly observing your thoughts. Well, I guess it goes to show just how delicate a balance that is to be struck for, for user experience designers. I mean, this is something which was a big part of the conversation in episode 12 with Abhishek Gupta, uh, who is the director of user experience at Lumosity. Now, they specialize uh, in games which in some way engage with your brain, um, either for things like brain training and cognitive improvement, or also they're now um, starting to work in areas uh, like relaxation and, and sleep as well. Uh, and a lot of what came out of that conversation was about some of those really fine nuances about how you firstly identify what are those things which can interrupt people's flow uh, and how you minimize those or how you use those only at moments where it is effective to do so and the, you know, there's clearly a real art and science to, to getting that right as you start to try to do things which are, are deliberately influencing the way people are thinking and, and their relaxation that you have to strike that that very careful balance yeah, and, and, and the user experience community, I think, has a lot to offer to, to the digital healthcare industry um, in, in order to, to bring the techniques of, of user experience into you know, achieving effective um, solutions. But Marek, from, from your perspective, have you, have you seen something that is uh, particularly catching or, or, or what has been your experience with, with these sorts of solutions to date? Well, there are several examples that perhaps we'll talk about a little bit later on that I'm aware of within the market that are really catching my interest, but are perhaps a little bit further uh, down the pipeline, not yet in, in consumers' hands. For me, Personally, I've got to say my exposure to this sort of stuff as a user is relatively limited um, and primarily around sports trackers, basically, of, of various different kinds. So I think we touched on this in a, a previous episode when you and I were, were talking about these things, but I've used them in varying guises for years now uh, and I'm pretty familiar with what's out there on the market and got to the point where I was using two of them, essentially. One called Moves, uh, which we've talked about in, in previous shows, uh, and another um, Google Fit. Both of them are defined by the fact that you don't actually need to do anything as a user to get them to track your activity. As long as you've got your phone with you, they will automatically detect once you get up and you're starting to take steps. They'll also know whether you're cycling versus whether you're running, etc. So they'd got the experience of these things uh, to the point where it was pretty seamless. Um, but I've found that I've stopped using them for the simple reason that I've got to a point now with the amount of sort of digital devices in my life, and perhaps this is particular to the kind of work that I do, where if I'm going to go out to exercise, I actually actively, consciously make the choice that I'm not going to take any form of digital device with me. And I put down my phone and I leave it at home and I go out for an hour's run or a couple of hours in the kayak or whatever it is, uh, and therefore would not be being tracked by these things. Um, so I've almost come kind of full circle on it. We're having tested out a lot of these different experiences and got to the sort of state of the art with them, with it being a, a seamless experience to do the tracking and them solving the problems of battery life and data upload and all those sort of things which were experienced teething problems in the first place, to actually consciously saying, I'm just not going to use this stuff anymore. Yeah, and that's interesting. And and perhaps um, 
perhaps you are a little bit of a special case, Marek, um, because you are so uh, deeply uh, involved in this field. Um, but for other people, I mean, like me, for instance, I just don't like carrying devices with me. I just prefer to, to you know, have my, my running kit on when I'm going running and, and, and not carry any sort of device. Um, and yet, you know, there are a lot of people who monitor their activity. Um, I mean, the, the Strava is, is one that has become particularly popular amongst, uh, amongst runners, both elite and, and um, the general consumer population. Um, so I, I guess it's, it's horses for courses. Now, Strava is the one where there's a gamification aspect to it, as I understand. There is there well, I, I guess most of these now have have some aspects of gamification. Um, but yes, Strava does have uh, leaderboards and and various other game aspects in it. Yes. Yeah, I seem to remember there was a bit of a craze for a while of people. You could, I think it was Strava which did this, where you could establish like the fastest um, route on say a particular road. So you got these competitions, virtual competitions going on where, you know, cyclists who took like a particular road into town every day could try and establish, you know, the fastest sprint time between certain points and get themselves to the, the top of the leaderboard by doing that. Yes. And, and those, those things, sort of things are sort of quite good fun. And, and there have been some other ones as well, which, um, which do things like pull you into a, a, a zombie apocalypse game. Um, I forget the name of it now, but, um, that one was quite a popular one for a while, um, achieved quite a lot of uh, uh, headlines, um, where you were simply you know, running away from, from zombies. So I guess regardless of whether you're chasing your virtual friends around a leaderboard or whether you're running away from zombies, almost all of these things that we've talked about so far um, are forms of tracking are forms of uh, encouraging you to um, you know, take some particular sort of actions around your, your health or your wellness. Um, but is there a greater scope here to look at things which actually start to cross that barrier from being forms of monitoring health or providing information on health to actually actively starting to treat uh, and inform the way uh, you manage certain conditions or the way you improve uh, your health. Uh, are we reaching that stage yet, do you think? Yes, I think so. And, and Marek, what I'd like to do is introduce this idea that we are currently at eHealth 1.0 and that we are in the process of moving to eHealth 2.0. Um, and, and I think 1.0 is characterized by simple not particularly reliable tracking devices. Um, things like step counters, which give you an idea of how many steps you've taken, although it's incredibly easy to cheat the system just to make yourself feel good. Um, and um, tracking that doesn't necessarily uh, correlate to, 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 to an evidence-based impact on your health. So, I mean, if we take step counters as an example... Um, anecdotally, there is some evidence that it affects people's uh, levels of activity. I know of someone specifically who started leaving the underground three stops earlier in order that she would get her 10,000 steps in per day. So, I mean, that is, that is a clear example of a level of effectiveness from using step counters. But 
for me, there are three questions that come out of this. Is that the most effective intervention uh, in order to, say, lose weight, for example? What is the overall impact on health? And uh, does the activity that is being uh, generated, those 10,000 steps, do they overcome the excess calories that you're perhaps consuming? Uh, and the third thing is, should we just be looking at weight loss and weight management with these devices? Or is there something that, we, that can take us further and deeper? Um, and so uh, I think we're at a point now where we are going to go from not particularly accurate, not particularly deep uh, interventions, as a medical community likes to call them, to um, devices and solutions, whether they're software or hardware, that um, not only tackle wellness, but also look uh, at diagnostics in a more sophisticated way, and, and indeed into patient monitoring and other aspects of this kind. So that feels like a fairly significant inflection point, particularly from an experience design perspective. If we go uh, from this era that we've been in, as you say, the eHealth 1.0, as it were, um, where essentially you are you're monitoring and then you are reporting back to people what it is you think they've done, setting aside the questions around accuracy, which I fully accept there are some question marks, I think, around the accuracy of a lot of these sensors. But um, yeah, even if the sensors were at their most accurate, all you can do is say to people, this is what we know that you have done, and potentially make some fairly generic suggestions about how that fits with a, an overall sort of approach to, to health. If we now move to um, giving people some specific personalized recommendations or perhaps even taking some kind of digitally delivered actions off the back of, of those data, uh, you start getting into the field of, of trying to actively change people's health. Now, health, of course, is one of the most regulated spaces as it should be. You know, anything which um, affects people's well-being in that way is clearly going to attract a lot of oversight and, uh, and regulation. Uh, and that may be a world where uh, people who are familiar with digital experience design principles in other areas find themselves up against a whole new set of limitations and constraints which might inform the way they research user behavior, the way they design the sort of systems which then um, take action off the back of, of that behavior, which feels like uh, you know a, a whole um, level of complexity beyond what we've uh, experienced previously. Now, I know in the startup that you're working on, um, this is the area which you're exploring. What's that been like for you? I'm conscious you're still um, under wraps to a degree with what you're doing with the, the startup, but in the general sense, yeah, how much of a, um, a leap has it been for you to get up to speed with what that world is like because of those regulations and those additional concerns as soon as you start doing anything to do with people's health? Well, for me, it's actually putting it the other way around. Um, what I noticed, and, and actually the motivation for me to, to get into this, was that um, you, you, you have uh, some, some wonderful things. We've talked about moves earlier today and, and, and on other occasions, um, which are phenomenally well designed. And part of what they're trying to do is maintain user engagement without necessarily looking at effectiveness. And so for me, it was really putting it the other way around. What, what is important here is to affect behavior change. And so without discarding 
the the wonderful work that's been done by user experience practitioners to bring into the mix um, behavior change techniques and to to um, to use a real evidence base in order to affect behavior change. And actually, the NHS is doing something quite interesting here. Um, it's it's well known that the NHS is massively complex and, and just massive anyway, and, and that changing how it operates is, is not just about changing technologies, but also introducing some cultural change. And, and indeed, that is already happening. And um, it is proposed and, and currently under, uh, under trial uh, a, a new four-step endorsement process for uh, health and wellness apps. Um, and, and before I actually describe that process, it's worth mentioning that actually there are 165,000 health apps on the App Store, which is just phenomenally massive. But that four-step endorsement process um, begins very simply by saying, okay, you are an app designer, um, your self-assessment in its effectiveness uh, is level one. So that's great. Then there's a, there's, an, there's a step above that, which is about crowd validation. And it's not just the crowd in general. It's not just get all your friends to rate your app. It's actually a specific group of people um, who have uh, some interest and, and uh, knowledge about effectiveness um, who will then validate uh, your app to an extent. Then you get into the next step. And here is where it becomes... Um, much more like clinical trials, where you will start to bring in academia to 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 demonstrate um, the effectiveness of what it is that you're developing, and then at that point, and only at that point, the NHS will say to you uh, that they are prepared to evaluate your application and to see whether or not uh, it achieves significant benefits for the, let's call them users, but whether they're consumers or patients or, or, or pre-patients, um, whether or not uh, the NHS can endorse them and say, yes, this is something that as a healthcare service, uh, we can stand behind and say, this is going to help you. So it sounds like there's some real levels of granularity um, at each of those four stages as to, to how you might go through that sort of uh, approvals process, as it were, um, and particularly around that that fourth stage, which maybe gets into some of the, the detail of this, because I'm guessing that um, that uh, the degree of, of NHS oversight and investigation into that would probably vary depending on whether or not, for instance, this was something which fell broadly into the tracking and reporting category, or whether it was something uh, which was, for instance, um, trying to make some kind of digital intervention um, um, for instance, you know, I've recently come across uh, a company called Achille, which um, has developed what they describe essentially as video games as medicine. They're targeting in particular um, ADHD as a condition. Uh, and they've worked with um, scientists who've done research into this area to come up with um, a game which they believe can uh, work as effectively, if not more effectively than some of the drug-based treatments to improve um, the, the condition of people with, with ADHD. Uh, now, if you were doing something like that, presumably 
we're looking at a different level of approvals process um, to actually get something like that into the market versus if you're just putting a, a rubber stamp of approval on, yes, this is something which can track your steps and you can then make your decisions off the back of that as a consumer as to what you do with that information. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's worth just noting that clearly within healthcare, we're not just talking about treatment, we're talking about prevention. Um, and, and let's just pause for a moment and think that of that £158 billion that is forecast to be spent in 2020 in the UK, 70% of that uh, is reckoned to be on preventable disease. So prevention is clearly very important. Um, but, you know, there's prevention, there's diagnosis, uh, there's treatment, there's aftercare. And there's, there's so, so that brings in a whole bunch of different sorts of uh, possibilities. Um, a couple of months ago, I attended uh, the Behaviour Change Conference that was hosted by uh, University College London. And um, saw a whole different range of, of um, interventions that are being uh, developed and, and tested. And uh, one of the ones that stood out for me was, was uh, an application that's being developed by a couple of PhD students called Drink Less. Um, and as you'd imagine, it's to try and uh, get people who are perhaps uh, overdoing it on the alcohol front to, to cut back. And while the app is uh, designed to be useful in and of itself, this is really trying to to figure out which of those behavior change techniques actually work and then to promote that and say, look, you know, app designers, look at this work that we've done. It's been properly researched. You know, we've got a, a, a PhD that sits behind this. Um, and uh, the trials that have been done uh, sitting behind this app uh, demonstrate in a, you know, uh, properly done uh, academic trial that that allows you to see what works and what doesn't work. Um, so so that sort of thing is 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 great in order to 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 see uh, in order for us to evaluate um, uh, services more effectively. So this question of behavioural change, um, I think, is absolutely key here. I mean, clearly, if you're going to have any kind of successful long term intervention with people's health. A great deal of that has got to come from a willingness for the patient themselves to uh, adopt new behaviours and, and follow a particular program um, to achieve the, the goals that they want to. Uh, and behavioural change, uh, you know, it's something where um, people involved in digital experience will probably have a degree of familiarity with it. But I wonder if it's worth sort of trying to unpack that a little bit and understand how behaviour change actually happens. I mean, from my perspective, there seem to be a, a few basic ingredients, but perhaps you can suggest others as well. I mean, I, mean, I think people need to be able to see um, a goal and to recognize that this may be a start towards that. Um, there also seems to be a need here for being able to break things down into manageable chunks for people as well, um, because clearly you're not going to get from zero to a hundred in a, a single step. Uh, you know, this needs to seem like 
um, a manageable and incremental sort of set of improvements if you're going to establish that kind of behavioral change. Uh, and also, I think there's a lot of importance there around being able to um, guide and incentivize people as they go through those steps so that you don't lose them along the way. I mean, those, I think, are at the most basic level, some of the elements of behavioral change, which digital experience designers probably need to become familiar with. But do you think there are, are others as well as you, you go towards that thing of establishing a real long-term sort of cultural change in the way people view their health around particular issues? Yes, I think the first thing to, 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 to add is um, the academic community reckons that uh, on average to form a new habit takes two months. Um, so uh, if you drop out of uh, some sort of behavior change process before two months, chances are you won't have uh, adapted your habits um, but there's quite a nice model for behavior change, um, which actually user experience designers who are particularly involved in, in, uh, in gamification will be familiar with. Uh, but interestingly, also academics are, are looking at this model um, as, as, a, as a good way of, of developing solutions. And this is the COMB model, which, is the, uh, which, which stands for um, Capability, Opportunity, Motivation, and Behavior. So the idea is that as an individual, um, you will have uh, some behavior that you want to uh, put in place. And that behavior will only happen if you want to have the, the, the capability of doing it. Actually, you're, you're actually able to do this yourself. Uh, secondly, you have the opportunity. There is the, the time and the space for you to do it. You have the right tools that allow you to, to do it. And thirdly, you actually want to do it, so you are motivated from from the from the start to to put in place this behaviour. Because if you're not motivated, it's not going to happen. Um, and and this is simple as getting someone to you know, if a doctor wants a patient to take their pills every every day, that patient actually needs to want to take those pills. Um, so um, there's no there's no point trying to to put in place you know reminders and so on if if really ultimately they don't they don't want to take them. Well, it's interesting to consider how some of those broader principles like that around behavioral change might map into particular digital design techniques. Uh, I mean, it makes me think of some of the things that we've talked about in uh, previous episodes and some of the principles which are up on mobileuserexperience.com around uh, how you establish trust in the digital environment. And I think there are quite a few similarities here and, and overlaps with that area about, you know, if you want to um, make sure that you're supporting those kind of characteristics of behavioral change, clearly it's going to be very important to give people clear signals from the digital interface that they are achieving particular steps along the way with that uh, behavioral change um, to also give people uh, a concise and clear a summary of how they're doing with it in language that is culturally appropriate to them and is easily understandable rather than tied up in some of the you know, more advanced terminology around health and, and medicine, uh, which are all things that, um, yeah, in the sense that we explored them around trust, I think were perhaps being considered more around uh, issues of things like yeah, online security and digital banking, but actually seem pretty applicable to to an area like this as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, actually coming back to moves again, one of the things that it does quite nicely is, um, it explains how it calculates 
your energy consumption, and it tells you which um, which set of equations it has put in place. There are, there are lots of different equations for for calculating the likely the the the, the likely quantity of calories that you've burned given uh, particular characteristics, um, and and they explain which ones they've used, um, and that I think helps. Uh, develop trust between the user and, and the application um, because it's saying that you know these these um, these calculations aren't you know made up they they are they're reliable they're independent they they are verified they uh, they've been endorsed by by the scientific community and and you know um, you can click on the link and check it out on Wikipedia if you want even more information. Yeah, that uh, you know as a general point relating to all of this area, I think is, is quite an important one. That obviously within the scientific community there are particular approaches to how you, uh, you know, reach um, a consensus on best practice in a particular area, shall we say. Um, and yet for people who are creating digital experience in this, they need to understand how they can find ways to um, share those sort of insights, share those sort of best practices and make sure that they're conforming to that. Um, and it does throw up some quite interesting challenges. Going back to the example of uh, Achille that I mentioned, which is developing this um, system for treating ADHD using... Um, game mechanics, essentially, uh, they actually came up against an interesting challenge with this. When uh, they were designing the the clinical trials to get this approved and, and, and out into the market in the US, um, which they're still going through currently, um, but what they found was that the expectation was there should be a double-blind trial where there's some kind of um, comparison with a control group that's had a placebo. Now, if you're doing that with a drug-based treatment, um, obviously there are some very established ways in which you deliver placebos to people and you deliver the real drugs to, to other people. Uh, but when it's something which is delivering this treatment digitally in the form of a video game, they actually had to give considerable thought to what form their digital placebo should take with that control group so that they could conduct a study which met the expected scientific standards. Uh, and when I um, was at their presentation, they weren't actually able to share um, yet what it is they have done to do that placebo. They have achieved it, but they're not yet ready to talk about it publicly. Um, but it just got me thinking about some of these um, unexpected considerations there might be as we move um, from treating things with, uh, I suppose, traditional medicines, where there are some you know, very established practices, to using new techniques where um, potentially Essentially, uh, there needs to be an evolution of some of those methods. Yes, I'd be fascinated to find out how how they they, they created this uh, video placebo. Um, I, I I'm aware that there are uh, that there is a sort of a classification of behaviour change techniques, but uh, this doesn't quite apply to ADHD necessarily, or perhaps it does. Um, and I suppose you can. You can carry out a trial that says, well, if you want someone to to undertake a certain behavior, you would get you know two groups and and you know perhaps get one group doing one thing and the other, say, actually writing a, a diary of what they've done each day, uh, and seeing whether or not the people that wrote the diary um, actually managed to 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 change their behavior more effectively than than those who didn't. Um, and, and there's a, there's a whole suite of these behavior change techniques that that perhaps you could break down into into these sort of simple things. But I'd be fascinated to know how they how they undertook their their, their, their trial to with with uh, children for with HDHD. 
One of the interesting things which came out of um, discussions with them uh, and the wider um, session this was part of, this was actually part of a a presentation by a company called PureTech, which is investing in a a number of these startups, of which Achille is one, and there are a couple of others that we might talk about later on as well, um, is that there's this... um, sense that there's actually an opportunity here to use these non-drug-based treatments uh, and to make a a good business case around them, because it may be that in some cases, the regulatory approvals process uh, is actually um, uh, different and perhaps faster to those drug-based treatments because you don't require the same uh, duration of clinical trials that you would do uh, with drug-based methods. Um, so I think some of these companies uh, are starting to establish, um, pharmaceutical companies, for instance, uh, are starting to view this both as a threat and potentially an opportunity for them to develop their business in new ways because it means they can experiment with treatments and get results uh, from trial groups more rapidly than they would do with drug-based treatments, which kind of gives it an interesting dynamic. I mean, to give you another example, one of the other uh, companies which has been invested in by PureTech is called The Sync Project. Uh, Now, this is the concept of music as a precision medicine. Um, Let me try and put a a bit of detail around what that, that actually means, because it's for me, at least, I found this quite a surprisingly new idea. Um, but the way they put it across is we already self-medicate with music. I mean, let, let me ask you the question. You know, when was the last time you listened to a piece of music uh, which changed the way you felt uh, while you were listening to it? I would say approximately 30 minutes before we got onto this call. This was part of your your pump-up process for getting on the podcast, no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) I I was just enjoying some music while I I prepared some lunch and and read over uh, my notes. Well, you only have to to look down people's uh, Spotify and iTunes playlists, and you'll quite often see people have, you know, their workout mix or their relaxation mix. So the point, the Sync Project, which is actually led by a guy called Marco Atazari, who uh, was previously the head of design at Nokia, um, makes is that we already self-medicate with music. Um, we know that there are certain things which make us feel relaxed. There are certain things which we will use to get us invigorated if we want to go for a workout or a run or, or whatever. Uh, and they want to um, try and establish a level of precision around this. So what they've built is a platform which allows them to monitor through a variety of different sensors in real time people's reaction to the music that they're listening to uh, and to map that against the particular tracks and the particular uh, aspects of uh, those tracks, you know, from beat and uh, cadence and all that sort of stuff um, uh, and build up a picture of how that music is affecting people. Uh, and what they hope to do with that is to be able to actually develop essentially precision music-based treatments where they can say to you that if you are feeling this way or you are suffering from this condition, then here is a tailored playlist for you, which we think will improve your uh, mental state in such a way that will contribute to you feeling 
better about this. So this is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I I wonder whether you know, as, as you know, creating a playlist which we already do is is um, is, is kind of fun apart from anything else. But are, are they are they using uh, artificial intelligence techniques to to develop the playlist? And does does the playlist also monitor? Um, what's going on with the individual to to ensure that it's being effective in the right way and 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 not you know in some way having side effects? I would say yes to to both questions. Although it's still I should stress it's still in the trial stages at the moment. They don't yet have a commercial product out there, um, but they did state that uh, it, they're using machine learning, artificial intelligence techniques on the back end uh, to do the analysis. And they are monitoring as well um, the res- people's response to that as to whether or not they can do that um, in a sufficiently real-time way to be able to say, you know, you've got halfway into the playlist and we can see this isn't working in the way that we expected. Therefore, we will adjust it on the fly. I'm not sure uh, about that yet. And I think it's probably still too early in the development of their, their product um to be able to to say that uh, for sure but it's it's an interesting notion as you say once you get to the point uh, of being able to to monitor in real time then why shouldn't you be able to adjust uh, on the fly you know in the same way that um if you were being operated upon and someone came across uh, a problem no doubt the surgeon would uh, adapt their strategy on the fly in response to that. Um, if you're going to get into this area of, of treating through digital techniques, then perhaps you know there should be an expectation that it will be able to, to do the same. Um, but would that concern you, putting your trust in something which is being uh, uh, presented to you as having the power to adjust your mental state? But knowing that on the back end of that was an artificial intelligence engine, which potentially could be making decisions on the fly um, that would adjust your mental state. Would that concern you as a, a listener, a participant, a patient, if you like, in that system? No, I don't think it would concern me at all. Um, it, you know, we, we go back to the, the, to, the, to the playlist then. You know, I, I put on a playlist to, to pump me up or to relax me or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I am aware of my my state of mind, my mood, um, but my my device is not aware of it. Now, if I am deliberately trying to deal with well, let, let's let's put it in in you know in in the sort of mental health perspective. You know, if if someone with uh, certain mental health situations uh, requires some um, uh, on the fly intervention, and that intervention isn't working, um, there is a possibility that not a guarantee that that uh, individual uh, is aware of the effectiveness or otherwise of the intervention. But the device also needs to be aware of it. And the sensors that exist today should make it possible for the device not only to be aware, but also to to, to modify the approach. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, if you're being cut open on a, on a surgeon's table and, and you know, uh, something isn't quite right and the surgeon says, well, I'll deal with this, you know, next time, um, there may not be a next time. And, and you know, it's a little bit dramatic perhaps, but uh, the, the, the need for, um, for a change in strategy, as you say, I think is, is, is not just um, a good thing, but absolutely essential. Well, 
one of the things this gets me thinking about is the quality of those sensors. I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier on uh, in relation to their accuracy for things like step tracking. But as you start to rely on those sensors to make more and more detailed decisions about what you're going to do for people's health in, in response to those data, uh, then potentially the the differences in the accuracy of those sensors become really quite important. Uh, and I think this has been one of the challenges for the SYNC project, for instance, and I think it's probably affects a lot of other players in this area as well, um, is that there is a real sliding scale of accuracy uh, around these sensors at the moment. And it's a very fragmented market at the moment too. You know, yes, you've got certain um, leading players, if you like, out there with things like the Apple Watch, where you can pretty much guarantee, you know, it's the same um, type of sensor within each of those and there's a, a fault with it. But if you look at something like the Android Wear market, where you've got these wristwatches, they all have different uh, types of sensor. They all have different um, levels of accuracy from those sensors. And being able to uh, smooth out the data and allow for those differences when you're trying to do something at large scale with a big platform here and make analytical decisions off the back of the data which is being fed into that platform, that accuracy, I think, then becomes uh, a bit of a challenge. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, as an industry, uh, and particularly for people who are designing these digital experiences, they need to be factoring in from the outset if we're going to establish that culture of trust around these uh, these new digital health services. Definitely. But but also, I think we need to start looking at um, sensors in a, in a broader way. Sure, accelerometers, yes, uh, heart rate monitors. But there, there are some far more sophisticated tools that exist. Um, uh, sensors that can detect the chemicals that, um, that come out in your sweat in order to, to, to determine what your mental state is, for example. Um, or, or, or indeed, um, uh, again, a couple of months ago, this behavior change conference I, I attended, um, having a breathalyzer that you could attach to your iPhone and allowing people who have serious drinking problems to be able to, uh, to breathalyze themselves and take a, 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 effectively take a selfie of themselves breathalyzing and showing that they haven't been drinking was actually a pretty strong intervention for, for, for people being able to say, Hey, look, you see, I, I, I can, I can have a day without drinking. Um, and, and so there are, there are a vast range of different sensors that, that go beyond these, these mass market, cheap and easy to develop, um, sensors like accelerometers and, and heart rate monitors that I think, um, will not necessarily get built into devices. Um, but will be available to to communicate with your device either wirelessly or not. I'm sure eventually wirelessly, um, and to provide data in a in a meaningful and real time way, um, depending on on what your your condition is. So that might mean that um, there is a certain amount of pre diagnosis for long term chronic conditions, and that handling of that chronic condition is done um, in quite a specific way. Almost all of the sensors that we've talked about so far um, have come almost by stealth, if you like, into mainstream availability, which I think is quite an interesting characteristic of them. I mean, you were saying there about things like being able to use the front-facing camera to take uh, a selfie in combination with a, a third-party 
breathalyzing device. And if you look at things like the accelerometers on devices, or for instance, the way um, the main cameras on some phones now are being used to be able to um, do real close-ups of people's eyes to check eye health. And it's a low-cost way in uh, third world countries of being able to monitor people's eye health in areas where they simply wouldn't be able to uh, get the equipment in the field to do that with dedicated devices. These are all examples where another need has driven the introduction of that sensor uh, into um, the mass market. And it's achieved mass market availability uh, by meeting um, a different type of, of consumer need. What I wonder is whether or not we will or whether or not we even need to reach a tipping point where some of these sensors start to be introduced on devices uh, for dedicated health needs as opposed to being introduced to support other kind of business cases and then being uh, appropriated or subverted, if you like, into being used for these these health marketing purposes. Do you think we're going to, to get to that point? Um, and if so, who's going to be the, the big motivator of this? Is this something where uh, a device manufacturer is just going to take a bet on it and do it because they think it's an interesting new feature? Or, or will this be something which is driven in collaboration with uh, health services or, or private insurance companies, maybe? Well, the question, I think, is how far do we want to take the, the notion of the quantified self? Um, and I, I wonder whether having a device that is all-encompassing and can diagnose everything um, is either necessary or, or even desired by, by the end user. And, of course, we know that people cheat with a quantified self um, solutions that exist. We also know that some people just don't want to engage with them at all. Um, so uh, my, my, my gut feel is that we're not going to get an all-encompassing device that has all the sensors that you might possibly need. Um, and as we get more sophisticated, the, the, the need for a fragmented uh, marketplace where different sensors exist on different devices that that intercommunicate in some way um, but only relate to those people who for for whom that that sensor makes sense I, I suspect that that's probably the route that will go down um, at least until we all have chips embedded in the backs of our heads well that is an interesting possibility and, and probably um, a whole nother debate there as well about the degree to which people's willingness to try these things varies um, almost directly in proportion to how close they come to their body. You know, if you're talking about giving someone a device that um, they can you know, put at arm's length away on the shelf when they're not using it versus something which is attached to them versus something which actually goes uh, subcutaneously beneath the skin, um, there seem to be understandably varying degrees of acceptance as to who is actually willing to experiment with those kind of things. So I think that gives it a bit of a different dynamic. Um, but you know, generally going back to this idea of the sensors, because I think they are key, they're foundational, if you like, to a lot of the, the potential for these digital experiences. Does that then suggest a need for modularity? If we're not going to be able to achieve one single all encompassing device, like our smartphones, for instance, that deliver these effectively, um, do we need to be planning for a fundamentally modular approach to delivering these kind of sensors into the market so that um, you're able to plug those into whatever kind of digital ecosystem that you're part of uh, to achieve those economies of scale uh, and make them compatible with the widest range of, of situations and, and for the most consumer lives? Yes, I, I think so. Um, let, let's not forget that the individual uh, isn't on his or her own. 
um, and that you know the 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 healthcare system does still exist and and primary care will will continue to be there and play a massive role um, a central role in 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 healthcare of course um, so if as um, I suspect uh, digital health e health becomes uh, much more prevalent in let's say ten years. Um, then uh, it will probably be the the role of the uh, medical practitioner to determine which module, if you like, of um, uh, which which module is appropriate for 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 their patient, um, and to to. Um, and to be part of the the ongoing treatment and 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 management of of any particular disease, so that uh, both the individual and the medical practitioner, uh, probably your GP, uh, is able to, to 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 track what's going on with you and 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 ensure that all is okay. I remember when we did the design challenge about this at MEX, and this is probably going back about five years now, we had a, a working group over the course of the two-day event, which was specifically tasked at looking at uh, the experience of, of, of digital health. And one of the key findings which came out of that was uh, exactly that around um, the opportunity to reduce the cost of supervision uh, using these kind of um, digital approaches and that if you talk to anyone involved in health services around the world so much of their cost is tied up in situations where uh, the patient needs monitoring and supervision of some kind to deliver the treatment and if there are ways in which these digital systems can help with that um, for health services that could be where the major uh, cost saving is um, but it does perhaps uh, change some of the requirements around that and, and puts a, a real highlight on how you create an experience which not only works for the patient, but also works for their clinicians, but also works for their casual support network. You know, almost always in situations where there's a need for ongoing supervision, it's not just the medical professionals that are doing it. Um, it's that sort of casual network of carers, family members as well. So you're actually designing for multiple different users of the same overall system. Uh, and it starts becoming quite a complex sort of service design uh, equation here. Uh, one of the, the things which um, I wanted to talk about before we close this up, and I'm conscious that uh, as with a lot of the topics we've looked at on the podcast, this one could run and run if, uh, if only we had the time to do it. But that's this idea of um, prevention. You cited a, a stat earlier. Remind me again. What was the the, the number around? Um, what percentage of, of these uh, diseases are, are currently considered to be preventable? Well, it's it, it's something like seventy percent, seventy seventy five percent, and 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 these that that figure comes from uh, studies in in the UK, the US, Australia, and, and no doubt elsewhere. But that, those are the three places where I've seen it where I've seen it quoted. So I mean that you know seems to to highlight. Um, where one of the real macro challenges is for 
our health for humanity in general really this idea that um we are living longer we are um you know living to ages where we can uh, have these chronic illnesses that perhaps wouldn't uh, have been an issue in previous ages where life expectancy was lower and that um if we can prevent some of those things from happening from lifestyle factors there's a massive opportunity there to improve the quality of people's lives to improve the the cost of uh, of dealing with these conditions as well um but when we boil that down to, you know, quite a sort of granular level for what that might actually mean um, as a, a personal digital experience, I think um, it becomes quite an interesting design question. Now, one of the other um, examples I came across was uh, a service called Sond, which uh, again is in the initial stages. But what they claim to be able to do uh, is to be able to detect the first signs of certain conditions from listening to your voice, um, as for instance, it would be used to make voice recognition commands through your smartphone, or perhaps when you were you know, speaking directly into the app, maybe even when you were just having a conversation like you and I are now through a microphone, it could be monitoring uh, what you were saying uh, and looking for patterns in your voice, which they know correlate to the development of certain conditions uh, in later life. Now, Setting aside whether or not they managed to actually achieve this and get it clinically validated, because they are still at an early stage, but let's say they do get to the point that they're able to do that. What might that actually look like and feel like for a user? And how would you actually deliver that? I mean, let's say, for instance, after this conversation, my microphone or the cloud or wherever the intelligence for this is has detected that potentially I have some kind of serious health condition uh, and needs to let me know about it. What does that look like as an experience design challenge? How would you deliver that news to someone in a way that they A, trusted it, B, you know, didn't um, end up having a more serious health problem simply from the shock of receiving that news? Uh, you know, how do you manage that process? And, and what kind of things um, is that going to mean for the people who actually have to design those kind of systems? I think one thing to, to, to bear in mind is that it's not just about the technology. It's not just about the user experience. Um, if we think about how diseases are detected early today, um, for example, there's, you know, there, there, there's a health checkup that anyone who's, who passes the age of 40 gets invited to attend. Um, and, and, and that, that is, is just a little check to see, you know, what is the state of your, your arteries? What is the state of your, your general health? And, and, you know, how active are you? And, and, and that allows, um, uh, allows your 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 gp really to to determine whether or not you are at risk of things like coronary heart disease or you're on the verge of of um other diseases that are, are related to obesity um and i was reading today actually um coincidentally um and i think this was in the guardian how effective things like the uh the 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 the, the smear test has been in avoiding cervical cancer um I'm not sure. I, I don't actually know how, how effective it has been, but this um, uh, this report was was suggesting that 5,000 cases of cancer are, are detected early enough per year in the UK alone um, to to mean that it is one of the most uh, 
uh, effective interventions um, that actually is that exists right now. So, so I think when we're designing um, the sorts of interventions that are, for example, you know, listening to your voice, it has to be done in the right context. Um, and it might be that, uh, you know, just in your conversation with your GP, or you, you know, you go, you go to see your GP for for whatever reason, and at that point, perhaps it is there that the experience. Um, is designed in the right way so that you know you're, you're you're sitting opposite your general practitioner and and your general practitioner saying okay well yes you have sprained your ankle um, but you know while you're sitting here perhaps let's have a look at this other thing because you know I'm thinking that you know maybe there is a condition that we need to to look at and and, and you know they will because you have a certain level of trust already with your practitioner um, you may feel more at ease you won't. Perhaps suffer also a, a heart attack from from the shock um, of of learning that you have a critical condition. So maybe maybe that's that's what we need to be thinking about is not just technology, but also the the human systems uh, that we already have in place and how we can um, modify their design to to include these these new technologies. Well, indeed, and I think this is one of the uh, things which is driving the evolution towards this more overarching service design approach for people who are working um, within things where there are lots of digital elements and perhaps a lot of the triggers are coming from digital systems. But there is a recognition that the human element of that is a big part of the system still and that you need to be, if you like, thinking about the kind of digital as the glue which can um, make all of those parts of the system stick together better so that for instance news can be delivered and discussed in an appropriate way um, by the healthcare professionals who've been dealing with these kind of situations for years and have the training and the experience uh, in doing that and that it's not simply a question <clears throat> of how you deliver it um, digitally. Yes indeed and and so what, one of the things that's quite interesting right now is that there's a there's an organization called Digital Health London um, uh, and they are in the process of setting up an accelerator, a um, little bit different to your traditional accelerator. They don't they don't give you money. They don't take equity. But the purpose of of what they're doing is to help um, businesses, startups, um, to engage with the NHS uh, in order to be able to create um, services that that both utilize the existing structures, but also um, the the technology and the innovation that that new businesses can can bring to to the party. Well, that sounds like a, a positive development because, as you say, the uh, national health services around the world, in the UK in particular, obviously have a big delivery role in this, and yet they can be um, quite uh, tricky organisations sometimes to to understand and to work with effectively. So anything which can help to accelerate that, I think, uh, sounds like a, a very positive development. Uh, now, I'm conscious that we have cited numerous different examples and, and references um, over the course of the show. So we'll try to put all of those into uh, the show notes for the podcast, which you can find at mobileuserexperience.com 
in the podcast section. Uh, and there's a, a wealth of um, material within the MEX archives on this topic too. As I say, we've looked at it at previous MEX events. We've run uh, design challenges around this too. And we'll try to include some links to the ones we've mentioned and also the ones which we didn't have a chance to talk about um, so that you can go and have a look at those. Everything from um, specific things about how you empathize with particular groups of users when you're researching in this area um, through to some of the service design techniques being tried out in different parts of the world with, with national health services. So do have a look in the archives and you'll no doubt find some useful things in there. But what do you think, Alex? Um, are there any uh, last thoughts you want to add on this or um, any particular challenges you think we should, uh, as a community, be um, be thinking about in regard to this, this area of health? Well, I think we're at a very, very positive time um, where the opportunity to implement technology, user experience design into healthcare is going to, I hope, I think, dramatically change our, our, our health in general. I think it's a great time to, to be alive. Well, I shall be looking forward to hearing more about your own venture in this area in due course as you start to get ready to uh, to unveil that publicly. Uh, and in the meantime, it's been a, a great conversation as always. Up next, a bit of an experiment. When the MEX team got together recently in London to talk about some of the things we're planning for the future, we also took the opportunity to try recording a little bit of the podcast on the street. We thought we'd talk about some of the user stories, which are so key to how we plan uh, things that we're going to look at in the future. So we've decided to bring the MEX podcast outside for today, and I'm joined by my co-conspirators in the MEX initiative, Patrizia Bertini and Alex Guest. You want to say hi, guys? Hello. Hi there, Eric. Okay, so uh, we're outside in London, having just had a bit of a, a strategy meeting for some of the things we're planning for MEX, and we got talking about uh, this notion of observing user behaviour and how key it is to planning good experience design, uh, and we were each just picking up on a couple of examples that we've noticed of these random bits uh, of user behaviour, which are so key to understanding how to design better digital experiences. Patricia, I believe you came across something recently in your office with Skype. What was going on? Yeah, it was funny. We are so hyper-connected and we tend to talk and share information so much that we don't realize that we could actually just talk to people. So I was having a Skype chat with a colleague of mine and she started a WebEx meeting with a third colleague of ours and no one else realized that the colleague was actually sitting next to me. So it was kind of hilarious and we were just saying, so we're having basically a public conversation on Skype and another so were there different characteristics to those conversations? Is there a different context because of how they started? Uh, the first one, yes, was a little bit of background around the meeting, so it was kind of what is happening behind the, the curtains, and the other was the official chat, but still it could have been done not in person or just talking. Interesting. One of those things which has evolved, you know, seemingly um, has been with us for a while in the office environment, and yet in the grand scheme of things in human history, is really just the blink of an eye that these new behaviours are, are evolving in. 
Exactly. We tend to rely on technology. We tend to share information through technology. We use technology. It's all about technology. But at the end, we are still people. And if we are ne- sitting next to each other, perhaps raise your eyes from your screen and realize who is sitting next to you. Absolutely. <laughs> Designing for those kind of distractions. Um, Alex, what about you? What have you been picking up on in the, the world out there? Well, Patricia, your example actually um, reminds me of um, an experience I had a few years ago with, with a colleague. We, we also used to work remotely, and uh, in fact, there were three of us working remotely, and we would have uh, these these weekly meetings. And uh, every week, um, one of our one of us had uh, an issue with um, sound quality, and, and we would explain to to this colleague of ours that that uh, we couldn't quite hear what she was what she was doing, and then. Uh, as we were Skyping, um, one day we, we discovered two things. One is that she, she had these meetings while wearing her pajamas as she inadvertently pressed the, the video button on Skype. Um, and when you get to really know your colleagues. <laughs> Fortunately, no better than that. Um, and, and the second thing we, we discovered is that um, she put the mic far too close to her mouth, and that was really causing a lot of problems with the, the sound quality, of course, and and it was actually damaging her mic, and she'd bought a new headset, which uh, she was in the process of damaging. Um, and, um, and and so, so you know, we explained it to her that if she just pulled the mic away a little bit, you know, everything would be better, and, and indeed it was. Um, but it, it's, it strikes me that actually it would be so easy for the software to just turn around, and well, not turn around, it's just a piece of software, but to, just to tell you that, you know, the mic's too close, because it can it can detect when, uh, when the sound quality is of a certain kind. Well, particularly with something like that, where um, yeah, inherently they are recording that bit of user behavior, and there should be a sort of back channel so that, you know, you can adapt on the fly and you can you know, shape that experience better for, for that particular user, because you can't plan for every eventuality of and every quirk of user behavior, all you can do is respond to it as, as rapidly as, as possible, I suppose. Yes, and absolutely. And, and, you know, of course, Skype asks you what the quality of the call was like, um, which, which rather suggests it's asking you what the sound reception was like. Um, but what Skype could also be telling, asking you is, you know, what was the quality of, of you know, the, the, the sound that you're putting out like? And, and, you know, that would be something that actually Skype could, could do anyway. It could tell you that it's not great and you could adjust it in certain ways. Also, as a user, I mean, as a user, you should be thinking that keeping the mic in your mouth, I'm seeing people actually having the mic literally in their lips while talking, is not a good experience. And it's not how the mic was designed for. So just think a little bit. Yeah, there's no accounting for human behavior, I guess. Well, the example that I came across, um, I guess, is a, a slightly different one. Perhaps relates to um, how we perceive uh, things within the market when you're working day to day in digital versus how people on the street are. And obviously, there's been a lot of buzz, as there always is, around Apple's recent product launches, like the iPhone SE, and particularly among you know, a certain breed of tech reviewer who loves all the latest gadgets and analyzes every little bit of uh, Apple's products announcements for the, for the latest bits of tech and hype. Um, it's been a bit of a disappointment. People looked at the iPhone SE and said, well, it's just like the previous iPhone. Why would anyone buy that? So I went in to do a bit of research on the ground into an Apple store at lunchtime uh, and just hung around the iPhone SE uh, displays just to see what was going on. And I didn't have to wait all that long. Uh, These three girls turned up, about 17 years old, something like that. uh, And they came straight in, bypassed everything else and headed straight to the iPhone SE display, uh, and one of them picked it up, and her friend said to her, um, what's that? And she said, oh, this is the new iPhone. And her friend said, well, no, it's not. That's the iPhone 5. 
Um, have you guys seen these? You, you, you've seen them in the USA, yeah. Um, so it looks very similar, and of course the, the girl picked up on this. So no, it's exactly the same. They've just you know bought out the fire. She says, "Oh no no, this is this is the new one." Yeah, I saw the, the announcement of this, and her two friends just really didn't seem impressed by it at all. And then she turned around and said, "Well, of course, yeah, it's cheaper." And they're like, "Oh," and all of a sudden they were interested. And then they spent a full five minutes checking this thing out, realizing that actually now this was an iPhone that they could afford to buy for themselves. And it just made me think that, you know, we live in this kind of bubble where typically all the people that we work with day to day who come to conferences about digital and UX are equipped with the latest stuff, usually at the expense of their company. And yet that price difference, which can seem quite insignificant to people in the tech world um, of, you know, maybe £100, $150 between the top end and the mid-range, like iPhone, have done with this this new SE model, can make all the difference to someone in a different part of the market. This was now an iPhone that they could afford to, to buy for themselves. And so I guess a bit of market reality um, overcoming the tech hype. And, and, and there's something that else that really strikes me from, from your story there, Marek, which is that the initial approach is about getting the latest thing and also being seen to have the latest thing. So if it looks like an iPhone 5, then it is an iPhone 5 and you haven't got the latest. There's no point having it until it's cheaper. Mm -hmm. But, you know, up until that point, it was, you know, this is the latest thing. This is why we've come to see it. And we're thinking about buying it, even if we can't afford it. Good. Well, well, I suppose we better draw this to a close before we ourselves become a user story for the people who are watching this (laughs) recording of this podcast uh, on the street. Um, The next user stories is an ongoing series, uh, which you can check out on mobileuserexperience.com. I think we're up to maybe 17 or 18 uh, of these now, just interesting bits of uh, observation that we've noticed of how people are using digital, how it relates to digital experience design. Uh, And of course, get in touch with your own. If you notice any uh, interesting bits of behavior out there on the street. We'd love to hear about them and um, we can work out some kind of story about how it relates to what we're all doing in digital. Richard, see Alex, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Mech's Design Talk. Don't forget, you can find show notes linking to everything that we talked about at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Also, we're going back to the original schedule for the podcast, where we'll be releasing an in-depth episode every fortnight, rather than some of the shorter episodes that we've been putting out on a weekly schedule so far. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or searching for Mex Design Talk in your podcast player. Please also recommend us to friends and post reviews wherever you can do so about the podcast. It's a great way to share uh, information about the program with people and helps bump us up the ratings so that more people can discover the show. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.